0: This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Power of Reading, Socrates to Twitter, and was recorded at the launch of Frank Ferreira's book of the same name at Burbeck University of London.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Um, Power of Reading, I, I first became aware of the Power of Reading when at the age of six I was living in Budapest in Hungary, and this was in the middle of the high style period where you, you had to really watch what you read because a lot of the really good stuff was not available for people and there was a lot of censorship going on. And unbeknownst to him, my father discovered this secret library bookshop which was located in an apartment building in the middle of Budapest on Lenin Boulevard. And on my seventh birthday, he said to me, I'll take you there and you'll see what this place is like. And went to this old building uh, and went up four or five flights of stairs. And we kind of knocked on the door. It was all very kind of cloak and dagger, very superstitious. And this old man shuffled out. He was very, very old, bald, you know, looked pretty much like somebody's great-grandfather. And as he opened the door, I smelled this whiff of paraffin that heated the place. It was very you know, desolate, poor apartment, but it was full of books everywhere. And it was, if you just imagine an old-fashioned apartment, but just full of books, hardly any furniture, just full of books. And we kind of went in there, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing there. It looked like something out of a, a magic cave. And my father said, you could buy two books, and the way that it works is that when you read the book, you bring it back, and you can exchange it for two other books. And for me, that was like baby heaven, you know, sort of. Until that point, I hadn't been very much interested in books. And I had been particularly interested in reading as such. But just the whole atmosphere, uh, and also being told that there were books that I could read that I wasn't meant to be reading, uh, that wasn't really available to the rest of the public, just kind of made me excited. I mean, every couple of weeks when I used to go there, I used to be excited just the kind of sheer anticipation. Or what I would find there, and the power of reading literally overwhelmed me to the point that myself and all of our friends, or my close friends, who weren't necessarily intellectual or particularly into schooling, all ended up, you know, sort of being overwhelmed by reading as a, as a kind of uh, important element. And that was a very important moment in my life because it meant that uh, I had a medium to which I could transcend my everyday experience—a medium that would. Propel me out of my immediate life, and also a medium through which one could search and, and find some kind of meaning, and also, and this is in Stalinist Hungary, a medium through which freedom, some kind of freedom, could be, uh, sort of gained, because through reading, you know, you were really, you, you felt genuinely free. Nobody was holding you back. Nobody was sitting on you, in the way it was it was in the class in the school. Or in other kinds of environment. So that kind of memory has always been at the back of my mind. Uh, and it's not that I'm particularly bookish, but it was just something that uh, had a very strong influence in my uh, subsequent career and evolution. Then, sometime around 15 or, or, or 20 years ago, I don't, I'm not exactly sure when I, I wrote a book about you know, where have all the, the intellectuals gone, about intellectual life in the West. And I began to realize that reading was beginning to be seen in higher education as something of a chore. And in particular, I began to realize that in in a lot of courses uh, in the social sciences and even in the humanities, book lists were getting shorter and shorter, and students were no longer expected to read whole books, but very often they were given handouts, very often they were given a chapter to read, very often they were given essentially craft, you know, so here you kind of read this. And I was quite when I began to realize how pervasive this was, I got a little bit disturbed because I said to myself, if you come to university and you know, nobody's putting a gun at your head to be there and to read, you, it's a voluntary exercise. You're there because you want to read and cultivate your imagination. So what's going on, what has happened, and pretty much at the same time, as I began to realize that reading has become seen as a burden rather than as, a, as something you kind of embrace and you kind of go for, I began to realize that there was a lot of other discussions going on. For example, in education, you had a situation where a growing number of students or pupils were being diagnosed with dyslexia. A growing number of students were being uh, uh, diagnosed with attention deficit syndromes or a variety. A growing number of pupils were declared to be not very good readers. And in fact, particularly if you're a boy and you go to school these days, there's an automatic assumption that you're unlikely to want to read books. That's not really what boys do. And that kind of sensibility in primary school is kind of very strongly communicated all the time. So I became aware, that I also became aware of the fact that there were all these discussions going on about the end of the book, the death of the book, the death of the author. I mean, everything was meant to be dying. So that's really why I went out and, and set about uh, looking at the history of reading. And it was entirely a kind of an innocent excursion, because it's the first time I ever went to write a book where I had no idea what the argument would be. I usually know what I'm going to say before I write. And I have a very clear thesis, which might change in the course of writing, but at least I know where I'm going to end up. That's what, with this book, I had no idea what, I, what would happen, where I would end up, what points I would emphasize, but I felt I had to get into it. The first thing that I discovered through my historical journey backwards is that arguments about reading or against reading and arguments that problematizes reading were actually developed far before anybody talked about the love of reading. I never realized that, but, but when you look at history, ever since the invention of writing, there's far more written about the dangers of writing, the dangers of reading, far more written about the medical consequences, the mm-hmm. diseases that you might get because... Of, of reading the wrong thing, than there is about uh, the cultivation of a love of reading. And in fact, it's only in the 18th century, a long, long, long time after writing has been discovered, it's only in the 18th century that the idea of love of reading uh, begins to emerge as a distinct standalone concept in German, in French, and in English. Up to that point, the, the idea of love of reading would have been uh, not seen as being relevant because until that point, reading was seen very instrumentally. You, you read because it was a way of finding God. So most of the books that people read would have been religious texts. In England, most of the in a typical literate family in the 18th century, there would be uh, two books: the Bible and Children's Progress*. There were the two books that would be there, and then. In Germany particularly, but also gradually in France and in England, you had the beginnings of what today we would call a self-help reading tradition, where people would read because they wanted to become judges or solicitors, or they were interested in commerce. But the idea of loving reading as, as a kind of aspiration was very much a phenomenon that existed on the margins of society. And even you know, as, as we go through time, you'll find that the idea of loving to read is always competing against arguments which try to restrain it, which try to, in a sense, curb its consequences. I think for a very obvious reason, because reading is a very contradictory phenomenon, <clears throat> even at the best of times. It's a, it's a culturally, it's got a fundamental contradiction contained within that, which emerges in different forms in every historical epoch. And the contradiction is, between on the one hand, the valuation of reading, because you know, reading is valued to some extent by all uh, sort of literary societies, and in fact, in many societies, reading reading becomes sacralized and is seen as a as sacred. You know, when you say "for it is written," uh, that's meant to say that's almost like God's word in a different way. And and you know, if you say that these are people of the book, it used to be a reference to Jews. that, that was meant to be. Although the Muslim culture used it as a way of making of of, of, dev- of devaluing Jews, but later on being a book of uh, a people of the book was seen as a positive attribute, this learning and its way of scholarship. It was on the head valued, but on the other hand, precisely because reading opened the door to all kinds of possibilities, precisely because you never knew where a reader ended up. It was always feared I mean, even poor old Luther when he reacted against the Catholic Church's uh, sort of uh, reluctance to allow the Bible to be printed in the vernacular uh, and wanted people to read, uh, read the text without the mediation of a uh, priest, even poor Luther realized very, very soon that when ordinary people begin to read the Bible, they don't necessarily draw the conclusion that Luther's would. And they are very often... Uh, become heretical in their thoughts, they often become subversive. So that contradiction in reading is always there, which is why we're always, you know, a society at any rate, always, at the very best of time, is very ambivalent about the, the status of reading. And which is why, I would argue, that reading is almost always seen as being unnatural. I mean, even today, in, in modern pedagogy, uh, if, you, if you go to a, a teacher's training college, Fairly soon, a textbook will tell you that reading is unnatural. Now, of course, reading is unnatural in the sense that books don't grow on trees. Right? When you go out into the, in nature, there aren't books, you know, book, book bushes. You know, so in that sense, it's not a product of nature, it's a product of culture. But just because books don't grow on trees doesn't mean to say that it's unnatural. And I think that's one of the tragic developments is that. With the passing of time, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, the idea that reading is unnatural is reinforced in all kinds of different ways, most principally at the moment by neuroscientists, who continue to tell us about what an unnatural thing that reading does to the brain. I mean, at the moment, neuroscience seems to explain everything, from our diet to our, the way we make love or politics, or every, you know, every kind of emotional you know, sort of reaction. But reading is meant to be even more unnatural than we suspected, apparently. That's the, the basic kind of argument. And of course, as a sociologist, I know that whenever people talk about things being unnatural, it's, it's not a, a fact of life that you just simply accept. That's it. What is natural and unnatural is as much a, a cultural accomplishment as it is uh, a fact of nature. And I think that's one of the things that we need to bear in mind. Just very finally, uh, finally, I think that it's possible to talk about three diff- different phases in the history of reading uh, that I'd just like to draw to your attention. Because I think if you, if you see reading in the way that it kind of evolved historically over a long period of time, you find that there's some very different themes. I mean, reading is always a problem, but the problem is different. And the scale of the problem, uh, the dimensions of the problem, also change and, and, and vary from epoch to epoch. I would say that until the 20th century, until the beginning of the 20th century, the main problem, the main complaints about reading was that it was far too easy to learn. When I've gone through all the textbooks, you know, that you teach children how to read by, and you know, there's a constant, you know, sort of undercurrent. On one hand, you, you talk about different devices and tricks you can use to teach kids how to read. But by and large, most people, most commentators, were worried about the fact that it was really an easy thing to do. And that even these plebs, you know, would go away, you know, and they would, they would pick up reading on their own. And we know, for example, that, uh, and this, this is a, if there any teachers here, it's something you, wanna, you could bear in mind that in, in a place like Sweden, and then later in Denmark, people achieved universal literacy very very early on, already in the, 18th, early in the 18th century, just because a law was passed whereby all Lutheran parents were obliged to teach their children how to read. And this is in rural societies, in peasant societies, where we didn't have the latest pedagogic tricks. Somehow these uh, Scandinavian people managed to learn how to read. And we also know that in England, before the uh, uh, introduction of universal education in the late 19th century, you already had a situation where 90 to 95% of the population was already literate without the benefit of teaching in many cases. Right? So I think, I think that's important. To realize. And the reason why I say this, because in many schools today, certainly where I live, you know, we have a situation where 20% of the children leave primary school being you know, at best semi-literate and where teachers are complaining about how difficult it is to teach a certain proportion of the kids how to read, and I would suggest that that's again not a product of biology or nature or nothing inevitable. There are other reasons as to why you know that is the case. So the big complaint uh, until the 20th century that comes up time and time again are the unrestrained reading habits of the, of the masses. They're reading too much. You know, they should be working. All these housewives, all these women who really should be breeding more children and doing more housework are busy reading romantic novels. And all these young people who ought to be, you know, sort of more disciplined and more moral are reading these trashy, you know, sort of penny novelettes and various popular literature. So they are reading too much. Today, in the 21st century, you don't get very many complaints in the newspapers about the fact that we're reading too much, do you? And nobody says that, you know, these children should read less. None of those things exist at, uh, at this particular moment. From the 1920s 20s onwards, what you have is a concern with literacy. And it's really at that point that illiteracy is, is invented. And you realize that, in fact, there's a large number of people who don't know how to read. And from the 1920s onwards, you have a growing momentum towards uh, problematizing the teaching of reading, uh, about seeing literacy as a, as a unalterable fact of life. People are saying in America that uh, at least of 20 percent of children will never learn how to read, forget about it, teach them about, you know, you know, about different learning, you know, learning styles. That's when learning styles kick in. You know, get them to play with their hands, get them to dance, get them to sing, you know, get them to do woodwork, but forget about books. 20 percent, which is a, a very large number that we're talking about, are unable to read. And it's at that point that you have this uh, kind of situation where the problem uh, gradually becomes not the fact that it's so easy to learn how to read, but it's so difficult to learn how to read. From the 1960s and 1990s onwards, we have a different phenomenon. The concern with literacy still exists, but now you have an exhaustion, a sense of exhaustion, coming through, particularly in, in literacy studies, particularly in, in many of the English departments, where the moral and cultural value of reading itself is called into question. This is when you have the development of new literacy, which argues that literacy is actually overrated, and that oral cultures are, if anything, even more interesting than reading, kind of, uh, than text-based cultures. And it's really at this point in time, when you have uh, a kind of a shift occurring in education, from teaching the love of reading to cultivating you know, good habits of reading towards what we call literacy skills. I mean, you probably all heard about literacy skills, but it's a relatively new concept. And the minute literacy becomes a skill, it's no longer the same thing as reading. Right? Because as you know, reading is about gaining meaning. <laughs> reading is about interpretation. Reading is going into a book and reading between the lines literary skills is about decoding the text. So on the one hand you have the devaluation of reading by elitist uh, literary experts saying that it's not, not, not as brilliant as we once believed and at the same time what you also have is a kind of almost like acquiescence to the fact that reading is difficult. And in fact, in, the, in, in, in today in the last 15 years that problem has become even more intense because now what we have is an argument where people argue that deep reading deep reading should be what, what I, I used to call reading you know. You know, I mean, reading is you know, you know, it's not superficial that's like reading the phone book that's, you know. okay. but deep reading they say is impossible in the age of the internet there are far too many distractions digital technology has undermined our capacity to read properly it's destroyed, neuroscientists say our brains have become whacked out to the point at which this is not really possible. And in universities, you have people like Kathleen Hales and others who argue that, it, that, that actually we should make a virtue out of necessity. Rather than go back to the old school deep reading, what we should do is adopt a reading style where we kind of you know, using uh, websites, taking bits here, putting them together, you know, and in a very, an argument is in a, in a very creative way, we, we become both writers and readers at the same time. And what it really represents is kind of acquiescing to uh, what is a problem that that is often in people's imagination because the reality is that percentage-wise there are as many deep readers in the 21st century as those in the 19th century. It's always in a minority activity. It's just that we're more aware of the fact that that reading has become a bit of a problem. And I was really, uh, just to end on, I was really delighted when I read a, a, a news item about these Kurdish guerrillas in northern Iraq, the Prishmaga, uh guerrillas, what well, I really love about <coughs> the stories, is that they go out fighting uh, Daesh, ISIL, during the day. In the evening, they come home, and they go to evening classes to learn how to read. Because they realize that reading is, is something that is really valued, and is really, really important. And you realize that despite all the cynicism that's been directed at reading, at the end of the day, many of us actually realize that reading isn't just simply a means to an end, but very often it's also an end in itself. And when people realize that on the battlefield of northern Iraq, then I think it ought to give us a bit of uh, inspiration uh, and understand that the battle for reading and and, and the power of reading is such that in the end it will prevail, despite all the naysayers who, who somehow believe that the internet has destroyed reading for the indefinite future. Thank you.
0: Um, I've got a quote here from President Obama, and he says, um, When I think about how I understand my role as citizen, setting aside being president, and the most important set of understandings that I bring to that position of citizen, the most important stuff I've learnt, I think, I've learnt from novels, it has to do with empathy. It has to do with being comfortable with the notion that the world is complicated and full of greys but there's still truth there to be found and that you have to strive for that and work for that and the notion that it's possible to connect with someone else even though they're very different from you. And I think um, what strikes, strikes me about that is the suggestion that, that reading um, produces an identity of the self and that it basically enables full citizenship, which is something you talked about um, in the book it's one of the major themes of your book really is that reading gives you a sense of self more than just culture it actually defines who you are is that right?
1: yeah I mean that's one of my well I should have known before I started the, the study but I didn't realise just how much reading first of all creates the individual I think the idea of an individual could not have emerged without reading because it is through <coughs> reading that you become aware of who you are in relation to other people. But then also, uh, in the act of becoming aware of yourself as an individual, you develop a certain identity through the book. And and what you have very early on is a situation where there are different readers' identities. I mean, different readers uh, develop different identities, they cultivate them through the books that they read. Reading becomes almost like a laboratory, a, a mental laboratory where you experiment, you're allowed to experiment in trying to be who you are, or trying to learn who you are. And people do that at a very, very young age. It's very often interesting when you, when you find that even children develop groups of readers, and they kind of talk about the books amongst themselves, uh, and they, they make distinctions. I mean, one of my, my favorite examples that I use was that uh, I was giving, giving a lecture at a, at a school, A-level students. And one of the teachers pointed to this group of 15, 16 year olds, and, 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 he was saying, well these are the, the, this is the Camus group. I said, what do you mean the Camus group? Well, these are all these would-be intellectuals that go around with uh, La Peste and, the, you know, sort of various sort of novels by Camus, and they kind of, you know, see themselves as being these budding existentialists. And what they're doing is, it's a performance, of course, but at the same time, that's a very real way of developing your identity. Like having a Herman Hesse novel under your arm at 18. I, I think I was guilty of that in my in my days. Like Herman Hesse was the easiest way of meeting people of the opposite sex. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> the thing about um,
0: reading is that it, it's dangerous because it empowers you. But also, power has an investment in you reading. And sometimes it, it, it sort of fixes the tote, i.e., it provides the sort of set of regulations, if you like, within the context of text that they want you to, to sort of um, learn, as it were. So, so power and reading are sort of interlinked in a way that's not quite clear sometimes to me.
1: I, I, I agree with you, but I think what's interesting about power is that the power that's imposed upon the text almost incites you to subvert <coughs> it and to react against it. I think what's very interesting, if you look at the history of literature, is the way in which people will take a text and interpret it in accordance with their own inclination. But also I think what's very interesting about novels, particularly, is that very often novels contain these uh, subliminal messages giving you instructions or giving you warnings. I mean, every novel in the 18th century has a warning about how dangerous it is to read. It's interesting. They all have you know, they, talk, they have characters that go mad because they've been reading particular kind of books and all the rest of that. So, but nevertheless, it, it, you know, sort of uh, rebellion that it kind of can cause in many, many people. Uh, it's probably the first time that people will have the opportunity to kick up against something, you know, that, 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 is, that is very tangible in, in their minds. I think for that reason, I don't mind the power because we, you and I, have the agency to... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking of also certain books that get banned. So uh,
0: D.H. Lawrence sort of ends his career, and all his books, or some of his books, really are are sort of banned. They're out of print. They've been destroyed. Um, In our own time, Satanic Verses was a watershed moment in what you can and cannot say in certain texts. I'm very struck about how a certain kind of reading on the opposite extreme is almost a form of social control, A sort of creeping hollywoodization if you like of of, um the novel so which is my field and i see a a narrative being undertaken by people who actually are just sort of um, not necessarily creating or challenging structures but they're actually um, taking on um, a sort of opium if you like using it in, in text, which is not deliberate necessarily. But, but I suppose what I'm saying is that as a reader, it gets harder sometimes to distinguish between what is good for you and what is actually going to make you go blind, <laughs> you know, uh, metaphorically if not
1: literally. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I, one interesting phenomenon I noticed is book clubs. Yeah. If you talk to people in book clubs, mine included, the big joke is that it doesn't take that long before the discussion of the novel mutates into the discussion of the film, Mm. sort of. And even when there's no film of the novel, you will get somebody sooner or later saying, well, if this was made into a film, who would play that particular kind of role and everything? And and I think the reason why people react that way is because a lot of the novels, I'm not an expert on novels, I just read them, consume them. A lot of the novels, you almost get the impression they're written with a view to being made into a film you know, sort of sooner rather than later and there's a kind of dynamic there which isn't necessarily a problem but very often it does short-circuit the potential of what a novel could be about. Yeah, I think it's also the way you get information. If
0: you get information, uh, I'll put it this way, A.S. Byatt once said, what you read is more important than what you hear on the radio which is more important than what you see on TV. Um, So what you are saying is that, you know, what you learn from reading is greater than the other two mediums. And there's no great film, sorry, there's no great novel ever been written about a film that I can think of, but certainly works in the opposite direction. Um, and yeah, you're right, I think, um, you know, I, I often complain about students who talk about um, the film before they will talk about the book, and I think it's just not the same um, sort of um, substance, really, that you learn so, so, yes, it's a, but, but that also now we're talking about, and you talk about in your novel, sorry, in your book, although it reads like a novel, <laughs> is, um, is the internet. And, and I think that's a, a, a modern um, concern, that, that the internet is a new age of, of consuming um, text, and, and that who is curating, and who, is, who are the curators of the modern form of reading? And that seems to be also a um, a concern within the book.
1: Yeah, I had a a kind of Paulian moment of changing my mind on it in the course of writing the book because when I started uh, working on the book I I was of the mind that there was an unresolvable tension between the internet and literature and novels. And if anything, I would have have sided with the more conservative reaction to the uh, internet which sees it as a kind of Devaluation of culture uh, as as antithetical to civilizational accomplishment. But the more I got into it, the more I looked at the way that uh, technological change and the media are perceived. The more I realized that if there's a problem, it's not the internet. It's the it's the fact that a lot of extraneous existential issues are recycled through the internet. And that actually, when you look at the internet and you look at digital technology, in and of itself it's actually quite a creative tool. I mean, even Twitter, you know, sort of, which has only got 140 characters and people make fun of it. I I know there's a phenomenal number of idiots, you know, playing around with Twitter, but having to make a statement in 140 characters, you know, can be quite a, you know, sort of a creative experience. And and there's no reason why we shouldn't be open to the idea that new technology uh, cannot provide us with new insights. And in fact, what is interesting is whether we like it or not, almost all the metaphors that we now use about literature and about culture are metaphors that originally derive from the Internet. So we, you know, we're talking about attention and the problem of attention, and attention is not seen as processing information. We're talking about children being hardwired to learn. I mean, all these metaphors just take effortlessly from the Internet and apply to... Your non-digital culture, so it's there anyway. And I think the challenge is, is is to make it work for us, rather than to be obsessed about the risks and and the threats that it poses.
0: Um, it also creates a, a culture of writing more than reading. Sometimes I think um, everyone sort of is texting or tweeting all the time. Um, so children from a very early age, once they have their first phone, they're, they're actually composing text. But actually, what are they reading? What's the input?
1: Um, Is there uh,
0: an imbalance between reading and writing at that level?
1: There is, and I think... But that's the fault of education. I think that one of my big beefs is that if you look at... uh, Particularly in the Anglo-American context, if you look at primary school education, uh, it is built on the culture of the handouts. I mean, it is... I mean, I would ban handouts, except in, in, in remedial reading classes, because... And that culture is based on the, on the idea of, of, of kind of quick, almost like sound bites, where children don't learn the, the journey from, from going from, starting at the beginning and finishing at the end. And it really infantilizes kids. It, it treats children childishly. And I just think it's a very harmful way of of almost like turning reading into a chore. I think that what you need is you know, rigorous application of good teaching methods with literature at the same time, those two things got to go hand in hand, and I think the reason why people come to university and don't read is because they've come to regard uh, reading as a, as a series of handouts that you kind of go through, and there's no way you're going to get turned on by a handout, it's just an inconceivable word. but you might get turned on by a, by a short story even, an O'Neill old short story or, or a novel. Um, I mean, I, I have... How many books?
0: Ten thousand books or more. Um, my 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 children who do read, I can feel. Uh they get exhausted just looking at them on the shelves, and also they're probably thinking, "Well, what, what's, what's, what are they worth? First editions? Maybe the signed first edition? What can I get for them if I... When he dies, where am I going to go?
1: <laughs>
0: you know, because they, you know, to them, this is just luggage. You know, it's it's just walls and walls of things that they have no interest in reading, which I've collected since the age of probably sixteen but they will one day disappear, and libraries disappear. And I remember talking to, to um, James Wood in Boston about his father-in-law's library that was really, really extensive. Um, he, his father-in-law was an Arabist, amongst other things, and, and no one would take these books, and they were really important texts that he'd collected from around the world. He just couldn't give them away to libraries even. So that was a sort of feeling that, um, that reading is continuing, but the, the book itself as an object is um, changing shape maybe. But, um, but at the same time, a publisher will tell you that they are pr- printing just as much books as they ever were. Um, so the, the feared um, I, I book, e-book sorry, <coughs> has not actually become the threat that they
1: thought it would be. That's right. I'm, I'm a big believer that the book is here to stay. I'm not worried about it. I think libraries are going to make a bigger comeback. At the moment, (coughs) most universities have turned their libraries into a a cafe house where, you know, people can, you know, sort of go online and look at their email, unfortunately. But I think that's a temporary phenomenon because, you know, we know that people value the physical object of a book and that a physical, you know, we talked about identity creation earlier on. People try to create their identity texting, (coughs) And that's one way, you know, if you see young people in pubs, they're always pretending to be busy texting, and they're always in demand, and they're <laughs> ever so busy. So that's one way of, of performing identity. But the, the performance of reading is still very powerful. And you, and you, and you can see that, you know, pub people are going into restaurants and they read. I mean, reading is the one activity that you can do, and you know nobody will disturb you. It's the one activity that you do that is also valid. People will not say, oh, that woman is reading on her own. That's really horrible. People Have a a different kind of interpretation of that, and I think that, and we can see this pattern already, that uh, you you have a comeback. You know, small bookshops are making a comeback in particular areas. You know, despite Amazon's powerful uh, sort of influence, you know, the book trade is you know sort of flourishing in terms of the physical number of books that are being produced, and I think that uh, you know sort of people will use e-books and they will use Kindle, but they will use it. You know, for specific purposes, when you're on a train, when it makes sense, on the beach, you know, all the other things. But I'm a big believer that books are here to stay. We're going to go through a fairly hard time for a while, because at the moment we're going through a big existential crisis, but that's only a a temporary phenomenon that will be, be overcome very, very soon.